What really knocks me out is a novel that, when you're all done reading it, you wish the author that wrote it was a terrific friend of yours, and you could call him up whenever you felt like it. Welcome, welcome. This is AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks with your hosts, Ramia Amudan, that's me, and Jacob Shymansky. Hey, Jacob. Hello. And, of course, technical producer Nisreen Abdelmajid, who's very soft-spoken this week, so we're not going to pressure her to say hi or anything, but I'm sure she's waving, waving from her home studio. We uh, started off with a quote, as we do every week, Jacob. You picked this one. We already talked about the book, where it's from, several weeks ago, so... Maybe people who are binging the podcast have already heard you chat about it. But uh, there's a reason why we're bringing it on. You're not going to tell us right now. But I will tell you what's coming up on the episode. On today's episode, we're going to speak with a special guest and author and can we say avid audiobook listener? I think so. Red Sale of My Life in Books is finally... Finally joining us on the show. I think it's like years overdue, uh, but he's joining us from England. So we're going to talk to him about his uh, authoring, his works on the show, My Life in Books, and everything else we can squeeze into that conversation. Also, later in the second part of the episode, we have more responses from our book club question. Uh, Remember when we asked you about mixed feelings? Books that left you with strong mixed feelings, that includes uh, enthralling, you know, at the end, uh, but also mm, dissatisfying. So we want to hear from some more stragglers that we still haven't gotten to from last week. But let's move to our guest feature of the day, Jacob. Mm-hmm. So the quote of the day is from uh, Catching the Rye by J.D. Salinger, and it speaks to when you finish a book and you feel like you intimately know the authors and you just want to call them up and coincidentally that's what red sale of my life and books seems to do on his show every day he calls up his author friends and he discusses these books hey red how's it going yeah hey jacob hi ramya uh yeah no i'm don't i have the best job in the world i get to read about books uh that have just about to come out in a couple of months time and ring up the publicist and say, oh, can I have a word with that author? I've always rather liked their work. Or I'll read a book when I'm on holiday and go, I'd like to get them onto the show and uh, find out what the inspiration for that story mm. was. What made what makes them tick? Okay, and we'll get into that. First, we have to do the housekeeping part of this, right? My Life in Books. Shout it out for listeners who may not be familiar. Tell us all about the pod. My Life in Books is a hour-long deep dive into an author's latest work, their back catalogue, and the books that have really inspired them through their lives to pick up the pen and to write their own stories, be it fiction, non-fiction, biography, autobiography. New episode drops at 1pm every second Monday, and it's uh, available, obviously, as an AMI audio podcast. I think I've done the elevator yeah, pitch. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, maybe I'll start with the first question, Red, because you're an author yourself. You, of course, are speaking to authors very regularly and reading a lot of books. And so I wanted to backtrack as far as we possibly can and ask you about your earliest memory or experience writing that you've shared or that you just can think back to when you credit yourself as an author now? Is there like an earliest story or poetry or something that you can, uh, that rings a bell? Oh, 
God, does anybody else remember the late 1970s? <laughs> yeah, right. uh, of course. Showing, showing my age. In, in Sussex, in the south of England, where I grew up, uh, you know, there was things like the three-day week where we didn't have electricity for two days uh, or three days a week. Um, and, you know, there was a couple of TV channels, uh, but we didn't really get a very, very clear um, TV signal or, or radio signal. So I, I just spent my entire time reading and I moved from sort of Enid Blyton to C.S. Lewis, you know, the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. And and then quite rapidly into sort of Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. And I sat down and tried to write my first locked room murder mm. mystery when I was about nine or ten years old. Um, I think it came to the grand total of about 12 pages and, you know, as a... At that age, you've got pretty large handwriting as well. And I think the butler might have done it. But <laughs> yeah, I just always knew that my life wouldn't be complete until I'd at least tried to write a murder mystery. And I guess I wrote off and on in bits all the way through my teenage years. And then when I went to university and thank goodness, I don't think any of it's <laughs> I was just going to say, Anne, how was it? <laughs> No, one of the things about, you know, the the three-day week and, you know, the price of oil being so expensive in the 1970s uh-huh. was that my mother needed lots of kindling <laughs> to light the fire. Your mother read oh, your no. book. My, my early man- manuscripts went up the oh, chimney. So. Well, you got to stay warm somehow. <laughs> Indeed. Well, wait, sorry, I, I need more details on this. So for three days during the week, there was no power? Like, we had... Something called the three-day week, which basically meant that, um, yeah, I don't think that uh, there was enough coal probably at the time going into the power stations to provide electricity all the time. And certainly where mm-hmm. we lived in in Sussex, you, you would have days without electricity. Um, and, you know, we had uh, paraffin stoves right. uh, to keep us... Yeah, I mean, it sounds so last century, doesn't it? And as I say, you know, the TV reception where I lived in the back end of beyond was abysmal. So you would just go days, even when you did have electricity, Mm. of of basically, well, I think it actually set me up for a life of very, very fuzzy and now non-existent vision. I think I was just getting an early introduction. Ah, because you're always squinting down at books, eh? Well, no, I was, you know, when you get a really bad TV signal back in the analog days and it just looked like a snowstorm. Mm. And, you know, that was exactly like retinitis pigmentosa in my 20s and 30s. I think of, for my family, um, my grandfather read a lot. He encouraged it so much, just independent reading, not not storytelling or not uh, reading people to mm. sleep, that kind of thing. But uh, that then passed down to my mom, that passed down to me my brothers don't read, so I don't know what to say there. But for you, were a lot of readers in the house? Was it encouraged? Did you guys have a lot of parallel reading time? Um, my mum was always a voracious reader. We had lots and lots of, sort of secondhand paperbacks kicking around the house. We went to the library every week um, in the nearest town and were always encouraged to get books. My brother and sister are quite a bit younger than me, so the six and seven years younger than me. So my mum spent a lot of time concentrating on teaching them to mm. read. So basically I was allowed to run riot with, you know, in the library and at home and just read anything that was there. So, you know, I think I might have, picked up a couple of books that were perhaps a little bit beyond my age. I remember picking up the 
the Tropic of Cancer by Anais Nin when I was about oh, 12 and going, oh, my God, I don't understand any of this. But, um, but yeah, no, we, we, we told stories as well. We were always encouraged to sort of talk about our days and talk about maybe the adventures we'd been having with our friends or playing in the woods. Or ah. whatever. So it's an imaginative childhood. Right. So I think it's pretty fair to say that your life has been revolving around books and authoring for basically its entirety. What's yeah. your personal relationship to the world of books and authoring? As far as being a writer is concerned? Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I my first, my first and only, not so far, novel, uh, Blind Trust, was published in t- 2011. Um, and I mean, that fulfilled that long held dream of, of writing a murder story, uh, and, and seeing it on the shelves in a, in a library or a bookshop, um, way before that, after I, I studied English at university, I was lucky enough to be taught by people who had been published and then to work as a journalist in, London um, in the throughout the 90s and I whilst I wasn't really writing majorly long features or anything I went to an awful lot of book launches first nights and so on and so forth and got to meet and talk to authors like Stephen Fry and Colin Dexter and um, Shirley Conran and so on and so forth and I think just because I had that love of books and clearly could hold a relatively intelligent conversation Mm. with them, it just meant that whenever I bumped into them, we'd have a conversation. And and I I don't say I keep a little black book of people's details, but, you know, we swap details. And so when I did start doing more book-related journalism and radio programs eventually it just meant that I could call people up and say hey there do you remember me um I'd like to um get you onto my show and also by getting that book published uh in 2011 it meant I joined the crime writers association and um obviously just attend functions and parties and so on and so forth and award ceremonies and I got to meet you know lots of other crime writers and everybody authors want to tell stories and that includes their own story so in some ways I'm knocking at an open door um and you know authors authors love telling you about their books so it's uh yeah no, it's a, it, it, it's a, a happy coincidence that my, my hobby has become my job. Well, you make chasing sound so easy, you know, Jacob? No, yeah, just know ever. everyone. Yeah. Just be good <laughs> friends with everyone that's popular in the world. Okay. That's your task for AMI Audiobook Review purposes now. <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is true, Red. Like, I think you're, you're pointing at something um, pretty significant and interesting, which is you're talking to storytellers and... And of course, a lot of the times we're uh, emphasizing the crafted stories that these people are putting mm. out there in the world. But uh, the stories are not just that, right? It's everything is a story. Everything is a potential um, yes. to share. So that's really quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
we, as you say, what we consume as readers is a very polished version yeah. of the story that that author first wanted to tell. And, you know, a lot of the authors who, who appear on My Life in Books will credit their editors, the readers who they have, the friends, the relations who, who they let look at the first manuscript. And believe you me, that that is a little bit like handing your baby over with a dirty nappy and saying, what do you think of my baby? And <laughs> you just have to be able to take it on the chin when somebody turns around and goes, it stinks. Um, <laughs> and, Love and, this analogy. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so, I, and I think a lot of authors can sometimes feel a little bit awkward about being judged purely on the end product. They want to tell the story of the story. And that's what I get to do in my life in books. I get to, you know, I get to to scratch beneath the surface of, look, I really liked that aspect of the plot. Although you might not necessarily have expected that it would be in a book of this type. Why did you write Mm. that? What makes you tick? What was the experience that actually made you need to process that in your own head and lay it out on paper or in audio for us. Right. So how did My Life in Books come to be? I used to work for the Royal National Institute of Blind People in the UK, um, much the same as CNIB, um, and they have a radio station. Um, and I had just written my second book, which was all about climbing uh, this rock pinnacle called The Old Man of Hoy, and was doing the whole kind of book um, tour thing, appearing at various book festivals. And somebody from RNIB Connect Radio came along to this book festival and wanted to interview me. And he went back to RNIB Connect Radio and said, look, there's this blind author, he's written a book, um, he's done a bit of work in radio beforehand. Um, you know, he's worked as a journalist in the past. Um, let's see if we can get him in to be the new presenter of Read On, their audiobook show. So um, <laughs> I got called up to the Edinburgh Book Festival where I had to stand up in front of a few hundred people and give my talk about this book, The, the Blind Man of Hoy. Um, and that was being sponsored, that part of the afternoon was being sponsored by the Royal National Institute of the Blind. And, um, I came down off the podium and I got approached by the, by the, uh, station manager and they went, we were going to give you an interview, but I think you just passed it. Um, <laughs> and I just went, oh, okay, fine. And, uh, they said, fine, you've got a, a weekly hour long show, um, interviewing authors about their mm. books. And I just went, oh, great. I'll do that then. Um, and um, they had a studio in London, just up the road from where I lived. And I did that for five very happy years. And um, uh, then one of my co-workers there, Stephen Scott, um, who we all know very, very well, uh, and I just were chatting one afternoon. And I went, look, you know, I've done five years. I'm kind of getting a bit stale, to be honest. Um, I don't like... I was having to interview three authors in an hour 
Um, and um, I felt there was an awful lot of stuff lying on the cutting room floor that we could use. And I just went, I would really like to do a longer form radio program. Um, and he went, well, funnily enough, AMI, who I, you know, who I uh, work for as well, um, uh, may well be looking for something of that. So I ended up talking to Andy Frank and the rest is history. I'm now in the third series of My Life in Books. And it's, for me, it's the kind of perfect format. You get a deep dive, 20 minutes or so on the author's latest mm. book, 20 minutes or so on their other books and what makes them tick. And then the the remainder just on the three books of their life, talking about a, a book from childhood that made them fall in love with reading and want to become an author, a book to curl up with and reread on a rainy day, and a book they've read recently that they'd like to share with the listener. And I, for me, that is just my dream format. It's what I want to listen mm -hmm. to, and it's a show I love to make. And it also means, you know, from, from a purely selfish point of view, it means all that homework that I do doesn't end up on the cutting room floor right. for the sort of, you know, 15 minute interview with sound bites. And I'm, I'm, I'm a long form right. person, not a short form person. Um, and well, hopefully the listeners like it too. So, um, <laughs> I'm, Please write in with your I mean, feedback. Uh, exactly, <laughs> it's such a genuine show, though, because it is really a get to know you session um, with the person on the other end. And you have, as you said, done your homework. This is your livelihood. You love it um, and always have. Mm. So it shows on the show. And I'm curious about what you've learned um, through my life and books, through before when you were interviewing authors and just doing this for a really long time. Let's get to kind of the general things, not to generalize authors all into one category okay that sounds disingenuous but uh, what are some things and this is a question was a question from jacob what are some things you find that most authors or all authors or uh you know writers have in common is there a common intention is there a common way of uh, going about sharing stories i mean we've all established that they're all storytellers what else <sighs> Do you know the thing I learned before this started? And, you know, I, I think it's good advice for, for anybody doing any form of journalism. It is do your homework. When The Blind Man of Hoy was published, I did a live interview on quite a high-profile BBC mm. show. And the first question I got was, so who is The Old Man of Hoy? God. <laughs> and I went... It's a rock pinnacle. Oh, it's not a person. And I thought, <laughs> you haven't read the book. You haven't even oh, read the press release. That's so bad. This is brutal. And, and it is just, and it's live radio, and you can't just turn around and go. How know, do you not make snide don't remarks? Don't waste my time. But, Too many you know, and, so actually, the thing that I learned more than anything else is do your homework. Give, if the, if the author has said they're coming onto your show, show them the respect and read their book mm. and then ask ask the questions that you as a reader want mm -hmm. to know and if you're trying to be a smart aleck and and trip the author up then they're going to get defensive and they're not going to give you a good interview it, it's not flattering them but you know it, it's just 
show an interest in their book. And now I have read books that I really have not enjoyed mm. and interviewed the author. Will you finish the book, though, before the interview? Always. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Always. Dedication. Um, sometimes at double speed. Thank <laughs> goodness that we have that function. Um, but just reveal that you've read the book. Ask them about the things that really interest you and put them at their ease. All authors want to talk about the characters that they have created. Pretty much every author I have ever spoken to, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, has fallen in love with the protagonist and some of the surrounding characters. And whilst, like family members, they might be irritating or bad or whatever, there is an element of love there. Otherwise, the um, author wouldn't have invested as much time. And the common thing is you quite often find the author talking about these characters as if they were a family right. member, as if they actually existed. And and you, you have to recognise that for, for them, they've lived with these characters mm. for sometimes up to one author I'm just about to interview. Eight years she lived with a very small cast of characters. You know, that's longer than you spend at university. So it's basically like going through secondary school with these bunch of people. And, of course, they're going to stick with you. So, you know, give them the respect. If, if you're going to talk to your friends about their friends, you need actually to have known their friends a bit to be able to have any meaningful input. Mm. That's fair. And you see the characters as being the author's friends, right? Their creations. Like in these cases, mm -hmm. it's yeah. like the authors know their characters better than they know the people in their actual lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's also a place that a lot of writers go, not just for work, but also to sort of exercise deep play. I mean, sometimes think about your classic um, uh, country house murder mystery. And then look at an eight-year-old child playing with a doll's house. It's the same thing. Hmm. It's, you know, it's deep play. It's moving people around it. You know, and, and, and you'll find authors, I, I've done it myself, talking to the characters in the book. And, you know, you'll find kids when they're moving their dolls around a doll's house or, or, you know, in their Lego space village that they've built they'll talk to the characters and, and it, it's innate in all mm -hmm. of us but authors authors are lucky enough to make a career out of it do you talk to your characters oh, what did, does that yeah. look like um it looks like me sitting <laughs> in front of a computer screen that i can't see going why can't i get you to be in that room with the murderer without it completely breaking oh. my entire plot <laughs> just tell me how i can get you yeah. there and um, yeah, yeah, I get I get frustrated with characters. I mean, there's there's one character in in my novel who I thought was going to make it all the way through to the end, and the novel was going to have a completely different ending. I woke up one morning, I thought, nah, enough of you, you're dead. And <laughs> by the end of the chapter, they were. That wasn't and, just an emotional um, response, though, like a reaction. You knew they were dead when they were dead. I just woke up and I thought, this is only going to work if they die. <laughs> It's so interesting when I hear stuff like this because, oh and I wonder, I wonder, like if I was writing, right, in a hypothetical scenario, I'm, I'm sitting down and writing a long book, I would have so many moments where I decide, no, it's just not going to work this way. No, and then maybe later regret 
and go, oh, no, I was just mad. I don't I don't think that was where uh, it's supposed to go. Do you have like rules or, you know, <laughs> times when you have to step away or something that you have to do to make sure you're not just having a reaction, but actually thinking through that deep play you talked about? Yeah, look, I mean, the thing to remember is that you can always undo anything that you've done. Undo entire chapters. And the thing, right. yeah. and That's very godlike, isn't always, it? Always. <laughs> oh, oh, indeed. I, look, I, I think authors are in some ways, you know, little gods mm-hmm. in, in in the way that they they control the, the minions in, in their books. I, I certainly felt it. And building worlds. I, I, yeah. And I... You know, I always keep a backup of everything um, just in case you do decide that that doesn't work. Um, Look, I mean, there is a novel sitting um, on a hard drive somewhere in my house, which I made I made a really bad mistake. I suddenly realized that the the book would not work if it was written with a first person protagonist. You know, I did this. Oh, that's a huge problem and Mm. massive problem. I'd done th- written three quarters oh, of the no. book, and I just couldn't get, I couldn't get that character into a room where he would understand quite what had happened. Oh, what do you do with so that? So I started rewriting the book as a he, and I. Not only do you have to change I to he, you have to change all the verbs. Of course, you have to, you know, and the syntax and so on and so forth, and. I actually, I, I did three months of that and I just thought, I now want to shoot myself. I now know what torture feels like. Um, Can you take doing this to the editor? Yourself. <laughs> Look, do you know, I'm sure that I could take it to an AI now yes. and just go, do that for me. Um, so who knows? You know, the, the, the sequel to Blind Trust may yet come out. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you've just got to know when you when you walk away. And actually, by the end of that, I'd also fallen out of love with the characters. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd moved on from that world and I ended up writing The Blind Manifoy instead. And um, so uh, that that was a liberation. I, I moved from fiction to nonfiction. Mm. Um, and I'm not alone. There are, there are lots of authors who've put books that don't work to the bottom of the drawer. Um, and then when they, you know, finally hang up their pen when they're in their seventies or eighties, their publisher will come along and go, "Have you got any books in your bottom drawer that you've never published? We're going to publish it finally." And and somebody else does the donkey work. I don't think I'm well known enough. Well, now you have three quarters of a book that you can feed through AI. I am advertising. Then... I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm open to offers to all publishers. <laughs> but uh, Chad GPT, anyway. finish this book. Enter. Yeah, right. Exactly. Paste. That's going to be a popular prompt. Um. <laughs> no, but on the topic of the grind of authoring, I'd like to talk about writer's block and if you've yeah. had it, but more how authors, the authors you've interviewed, generally handle it. Because you are somewhat of an expert on the psychology of authors, I would even go as far as to say that mm. because you've you've interviewed over a thousand authors. That's what you Huge told us just size. before the interview. Mm. Mm. How do authors typically handle writer's block? What are the common responses? The majority of them write their way out of it. There's, um, I think it was Will Self, the author Will Self, uh, coined the phrase writer Conrad a day. Joseph Conrad, um, the author of Heart of Darkness, used to say, if I can write 700 words a day, I'm job done. 
Will Self basically now calls that a Conrad, and he would sit down and write one or two Conrads a day, oh. and uh, and if he was really lucky, three. And at my very best, at my most fluent, I could write two thousand words a day because that's when it's oh. really coming. But se- seven hundred words a day is a good achievable target, and you can just write your way out of it. Writer's block, I think, is a little bit like rocking up to a uh, a mountain and going, oh my God, how am I going to climb all 25,000 mm. feet of that? Actually, what you have to do is go, right, I'll, I'll do it in pitches. You know, I'll do, I'll do it in 700 foot chunks, 700 word chunks, you know, and you just, you slog it out. And you realize that some of that's just going to end up in the bin when you come through and do your edit. But if you can just get an, it's about getting words down on a page or words down on a screen. Um, so most writers I know have managed to write their way out of it. A few who have had maybe 10-year gaps between their mm. books. I suspect, or they have told me, that it's more a crisis of confidence. It's more a crisis of expectation. They tend to be the people who've actually had a really unexpected bestseller and then there's all the can you do another one of those and it's like no actually I don't want to do another one of those Mm. um and or I'm never going to be able to reproduce that and and that's something where you know you're probably going need to go and talk to somebody who's going to be able to get them into the psychological headspace to be able to sit down and write like all these things when it becomes a chore it's hard work you can treat it as a job, but we all have to enjoy our yep. jobs actually to get out of bed to do it again. So when it becomes a chore, it'll show in your writing. And if it shows in your writing, it's a very rare author who can bear their soul entirely in a mm. book and carry all the readers with them. It's so empathetic as part of the human mm. condition, right? Like you're wanting to have this personal experience. It has to be. It has to be a a private personal experience uh, mm. to begin with, you know, writing books. You're going deep within yourself and mm. that uh, creative. But then you're putting it out there. And that is, you know, yeah. solely about feedback, about reception from the world and numbers and sales and all these other things. So then you have to yeah. switch back again and you know, dismiss all that other stuff or be able to put it down, compartmentalize it and go back to writing and back mm. in yourself without the pressure. That's hard stuff. Yeah, and, and you, you've hit the nail on the head. You know, you've got to remember this is an industry. Yeah. This is this mm. is a, a an industry that generates a lot of money and a lot of um employment for people. The author is a very major cog mm. in that, but they are not the only cog. And some of the better known writers, better known series writers um, will have a whole team behind them. Um, I, I think um, uh, Patterson, um, gosh, Christine has gone completely out of my head. James Patterson um, has a whole team um, doing research and helping, um, you know, get those books written um, at the speed that they are. And so, you know, you don't always have that lovely sense of ownership that a lot of first-time novelists do. 
I'm I'm always interested in people's first novels because right. that, in many ways, is where you get the most hmm. honest yes. look at what the author is and what makes them tick. Second novels, like second albums, can be where they really hit their stride. Mm. Um, you know, and I'll always interview an author about the twelfth book in the series, but actually by that stage. They might not admit it, but there is an element of painting by numbers. Of course. Yeah. Hmm. Um, wanted to get your quick thought before we move to something completely different about audiobooks. Uh, do you have a particular preference for audiobook production, um, whether that be, you know, single narrators, duo narrators? Now we're getting a lot more of this fuzzy, fuzzier um, between audiobooks and audio dramas you know all kinds of yeah. things there's production is becoming a, a whole spectrum now yeah look i mean i, I love radio plays mm. and i i always have but i must say i don't particularly enjoy listening to an audiobook that has six narrators <laughs> trying to recreate an audio a, a radio play that's kind of not my thing i Two narrators can work very, very, very well. There's a, there's a book I'm featuring on the show in a few weeks' time called The Brother, where you've got one character is the um, the person investigating a serial killer and the other one is a serial killer. And the, the serial killer is male, as most of them are, and, uh, and, and the investigative psychologist is female. And that, that works really, really well. But more than two narrators, nah, not really, doesn't, doesn't do it for me. I, I think... Your perfect audiobook narrator can create theatre for one. She can, or he, can just be the actor who does the whole range of voices and is is your voice as the reader, um, but doing the heavy lifting for you. You know, do I miss being able to mm. read with my eyes? Yes, massively, because I did all that in my own head. But for somebody who can't see and I can't read Braille quickly enough right. to read a novel, then... Um, for me, having somebody like Aoife McMahon, for instance, who we'll come on to talk right. about later, who is a proper professionally trained stage actress. You know, she's done Royal Shakespeare Company stuff and she's appeared in, um, you know, lots of well-known TV series. And she can do that theatre for one. And she is my guide to the book that I'm reading. And for me, that is my greatest pleasure. It's interesting how when you're listening to an audiobook. Yes, you're hearing it through the voice of an individual person, even though they might be rep mm. representing the voices of many characters. But in our heads, despite that, we can still use our imagination, theater of the mind, to imprint our own yeah. versions of that voice. Like I don't think because it's an audiobook, you were stripped of that creative control in your head. Would you agree? I completely agree. And actually, I would say the, the, the narrators who try too hard mm. stop that theatre mm. of the mind. When, you, yes. when, the, yeah. when the narrator becomes a character in and of themselves, that's bad. The only way, the only exception to that is somebody reading their own autobiography. That, that, you, know, you want Michelle Obama reading her own autobiography and she can be as much Michelle Obama as she wants. But, you know, the if I'm listening to an audio book where you just have the narrator's voice and he is front and centre, and it, unfortunately the ones who tend to make a mess of it tend to be men, um, 
then it becomes too stentorian and mm. it removes from any enjoyment of the book. Um, and so, yeah, you need, you need somebody who is an actor who's prepared to fade a little bit into the shadows and play all the parts rather than standing there going, look at me, I am the actor who is giving mm-hmm. you this. It, 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 it's a subtle play. Yeah, this seeps into our discussions around um, narration, um, audio description narration as well, right? There are lots of similar mm-hmm. opinions mm-hmm. in this vein. No, it, it's very different. A lot of these uh, audiobook narrators come from the acting world, and especially if it's stage acting, it's very much about me, the actor. Like, I yeah. am front and center yeah. in the spotlight, whereas when you're reading an audiobook, when you're narrating an audiobook, it's not about you. Mm-mm. You embody no. the characters almost more than you would on a stage or on Mm-mm. the screen. And it has to be said, I, I, I am my thoughts on this have very much been coloured by the fact that I worked in the Royal National Institute of the Blind Talking Books Studios. The, you know, the, in the UK, the, the centre of excellence for audiobook production for you know 70 80 mm. years um and they very much took that um view that you are the facilitator rather than the storyteller yes. the yeah. storyteller is the author yes. you are the facilitator oh that is so interesting yeah because i think that that's not true for everybody some people think of the narrator as the storyteller like i mean in all yeah. you know popular ways that's the way it's presented but yeah and you're putting you're sticking the author into this as like a whole different role it shifts things around yeah and i think with the commercial audiobook production companies some of the not so good ones are straying more into radio drama type production and that's fine you know if you're writing a a buffy spin-off great you know i i i I would say you know buffy came first as a as a tv series so so fine you you can do that that the book in some ways is is a script but for a novel especially i think you have to remember that generally they are written by one person and that one person has created a lot of characters, yes. all of whom need to have a an interpretation rather than a, a kind of, um, you know, the, the actor telling you, well, this is how mm. I see it. It's, uh, it doesn't really work. Hmm. Okay. Shall we? Shall we yeah, play a Red, game? Yeah? We would love to get to know your uh, reading preferences a little better. And our favorite way of doing that is our rapid fire review segment. Yeah, you as I told you. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> no, it's the scissors coming towards that was me. Evil. Um, <laughs> didn't even let them in. As I told you, I really don't like doing things against the clock, so you <laughs> So we prolonged this. We'll see how this as goes. Thanks, Jacob. It's okay. We're going to make you sweat a little bit. And a little sweat never hurt anyone. Oh, but before we get started, I'm just going to explain the rules really quickly. So, you kindly provided to us five books, your five most recent reads. You have 15 seconds for each book to give an extremely concise review. Once you finish going through the five books, you can pick one of them and give a more detailed rave or rant or something in between. You ready? As I'll ever be. Okay. How many seconds on the clock? 15 seconds for each book. That's an update, by the way, Red. It used to be 10. 
Thank, thank you for the extra 50%. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. First book, Gin, Turpentine, Penny Royal, Rue by Christine Higdon. A vivid portrayal of life in Vancouver in the early 1920s follows four working-class sisters as they try to negotiate life after the First World War in a place where you've got bootlegging and being homosexual Ooh. or having an abortion is illegal. Uh, okay. Okay, that was really, really well done. I'm so intrigued by this. Okay, uh, next book for Rapid Fire, Gaslight by Femi Coyote. The follow-up to Fima Coyote's very successful first novel, Light Seekers, this time American forensic psychologist Philip Taiwo is investigating a leader of a megachurch who's been accused of murdering his wife. <laughs> I can hear the nerves. Oh, my God. I know. I feel In bad. Lagos. In Lagos. <laughs> <laughs> this is brutal. Okay, keep going. Young Queens by Lee Redmond Chang. Historical biography telling the story of three women who exercised power as queens during the 16th century, Queen of France, Queen of Spain, and Mary, Queen of Scots. What? With time else? to spare. That, that sounds was fascinating. Excellent. Yeah. That was a really good what two-liner pitch. Yeah. Okay, um, next one. Funeral in Berlin by Len Dayton. Book three in his so-called Harry Palmer series that started with the Ipcrest file brings to light the tense espionage and swinging 60s that was so well evoked by Michael Caine in brand new narrated audiobook versions. Nice. Wow. You're getting the hang of this. What was the series? This is the third book in? Um, it's the Harry Palmer series. It started with the Ipcrest file, the Michael Caine film, Spy Thrillers. Oh. Horse Underwater was the... Second one, Funeral in you Berlin. You so Brilliant. called. You have, a, you have a problem with the title? <laughs> Harry Palmer. No, basically, the the, t the the film company decided that they had to give a name to the uh... character because basically the Michael Caine character is the spy with no name. But at one point in the first book, he gives his name, his false name, as Harry Palmer. So it just stuck. But Len Dayton, who is still alive but doesn't do interviews, otherwise I've had, had him on mm. the show, has always been really kind of um, slightly snarky about it, going, he's not called Harry Palmer, he's not got a name at all. <laughs> um, so just in case, Len Dayton's reading, I've respected your wishes, please come on to my show. I'd love to discuss the so-called Harry Palmer series with you. You're not asking, but you're asking. Got it. Hey, that was my 15-second elevator pitch. I'm... <laughs> Yo, this is still a rapid-fire review. Okay, next yeah, yeah, one. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Falling Animals by Sheila Armstrong. Hauntingly beautiful debut novel by Irish author Sheila Armstrong set uh, on the west coast of Ireland. A body turns up on the beach. Unexplained, not being murdered, creates lots of waves within the community. Did oh. we do metaphors also? That was great. <laughs> oh. Washed up on the beach and created waves. lots of waves. Did you write that on purpose? Uh, Brilliant. That was excellent. Was that straight from the synopsis? No, oh, just. No, that would be that... cheating. <laughs> God, of course, I could have just done the synopsis <laughs> off the back of the book. God, silly me, I've done all this homework. <laughs> okay, okay. Which, which one... is the book yeah. you'd like to feature? Right. The book I'd like to feature is Falling Animals because, quite simply, it is the best novel I have read in the last decade. Mm. Wow. And I've read a lot of books. Huge statement, yeah. Um, it was featured on an episode of My Life in Books a few weeks ago, as was the narrator 
Aoife McMahon, uh, who we talked about earlier, who has just got a beautiful Irish voice and could read the telephone directory <laughs> to me, and I would still be happy. Um, it is based on a real-life mystery that happened in this west coast of Ireland town that Sheila Armstrong was born in. She was actually at university when it happened in 2009. A man's body just turned up at the foot of the cliffs, dressed, not being murdered, just dead. And she, it got her thinking, you know, wow, what caused this? Where did he come from? And it's still an unsolved case. She didn't want to investigate the case per se. She just thought, I've got to use this as a starting point. So the only clues to the fictional character's identity are that he's got a missing wedding ring finger and a Mm. wedding ring tucked into the top pocket of his jacket. All the labels have been cut out of all his clothes. He's got no identifying things about him at all. And whilst... I'm not going to offer any spoilers here. Whilst we do investigate the mystery of his identity in the book, this is far more about the identities of the inhabitants of this small coastal town and how their reactions tell you about their lives. And each chapter focuses on a separate character and they're all given titles. So you've got the guard, the policeman. You've got the witness the old lady who walks along every uh walks along the beach every day you've got the cook the person who runs the the local cafe you've got the painter and it's how they react to the appearance of this mystery within their midst which stirs up those deep undercurrents of emotion that you get in any small community and it is just a you get to spend a chapter walking with each character and each one of them wittingly or unwittingly has a piece of the puzzle that eventually leads to some kind of closure at the end of this book and it made me laugh it reduced me to tears there's a a, a chapter there about an artist who's got um, a degenerative wasting disease I think it's multiple sclerosis and her son who has come back from the states to look after her And they've been estranged. And the way Sheila Armstrong writes about a degenerative disability and the fallout that it has on your closest family around you and and how it leaves you feeling all feeling ragged and storm-tossed like the, the coastal place they live in just had me weeping buckets because, you know, I've got a degenerative... Um, genetic disease and it just rang so many bells and and Sheila Armstrong for a a relatively young woman I think she's in her 30s has such a deep empathy and and understanding of human emotion I can't believe this is her debut novel and I just cannot wait to um to read what she does next and Jacob that that Mm. quote that you gave at the top of the show I read the first two chapters of Falling Animals and I went if I do nothing else, I've this series, I've got to get Sheila Armstrong onto my show. And she accepted. And I could have spent a day talking to her about this book. It's a small book. It's only seven and a half hours long. But 
I urge anybody wow. to download the audiobook version, oh. which is beautifully written, or just get a paperback copy oh. because it is also beautifully produced. I, I gave a copy to my daughter and she described how it's been printed and produced. And it is just, it looks good on her bookshelf. Uh, I, I, I not, I'm throwing out a, a, a bit of a, a challenge here because somebody will come back and go, that book that Red recommended was a total stinker. But as yet mm. of the 50 or 60 people I've raved about this book over the last year or two, nobody has come back and gone, that was a bad recommendation. That's it. Yeah. It's on our reading list. Yep. Now. Yep. Good. Like it's, it's next. Yeah. <laughs> Red, this has been fantastic. Like, I don't think we have any any time left for the rest of the show. Uh, we just want to talk to you all day. Like, this has been so good. We got to so many things. And I hope you'll come back maybe in another two or three years because that's how long it took to come onto this episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, uh, yes. Can you tell I'm being passive aggressive? Well, no. <laughs> you got to come back onto my <laughs> show next time, right? There You're we go. right. We, we should make this You're an right. annual thing. Well, you, 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 you come on to My Life in Books uh, next series and I'll come back in, okay. a, uh, in a couple of years. That would be lovely. It's perfect. Thank you, Ramya. Thank you, Jacob. Know, it's I been I can't believe how quick it's gone. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Go well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Red. Red Sale, host of My Life in Books, new episode every month on your favorite podcast platform, also airs on AMI Audio. Check him out. Check out the podcast, and he will be back. You heard it here. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back to wrap the show with you. This is AMI Audiobook Review. Welcome back to the AMI Audiobook Review. I'm Jacob Shamansky with Ramya Amuthan and technical producer Nisreen Abdelmajid. Man, read before the break. You know, Man. everything. We got into so much stuff. Authors, his preferences in books and audiobooks, uh, the show My Life in Books. There's always so much to get to with Red because he has expertise and experiences. I, I could listen to him talk all day. I know. And he could listen to Sheila talk all day. So <laughs> we're all just super fans of each other. I know what the listeners want to hear, though, and that's the Sheila homepage. Yeah, okay, fine. I will deliver. These are the three feature titles on the Sheila homepage. So you go to the Center for Equitable Library Access by visiting celalibrary.ca. And here are the three titles up there. The Armor of Light, Kingsbridge Number 4 by Ken Follett, and this is a historical fiction title. Second one, Starling House by Alexi Hero. This is romantic suspense. And the final feature title is The Running Grave by Robert Galgrave, and this is a gentle mysteries. Okay, mm-hmm. celalibrary.ca for all that. Should we get to the last two responses we have for the book club question that we posed, which is, Books or a book that has left you with strong mixed feelings, a.k.a. equally enthralling and frustrating. Okay, let's play a clip uh, from our friend uh, Kamini. I can tell you one of the books that um, had me frustrated regularly. (laughs) I think there's a bunch of books, but the one that comes to mind the most, I would say, is probably Gone with the Wind, because um, even though it was a great book, I really enjoyed it. It was very well written. 
it regularly had me frustrated because I constantly wanted to reach in the book and strangle Scarlet, who is the main character. I tend to not like a lot of main characters in books, and this was one that I remembered a lot because I feel like there were a lot of times in the books where I kept thinking, why is she doing this? Why is she doing that? But otherwise, Gone with the Wind won of the greatest books I've ever read. Um, before we discuss this one, I want to read a response from Sarah Hillis because she had a very similar type of frustration mm. with a different book. Okay. I think the last book I read that made me feel this way was The Late Americans by Brandon Taylor. To be fair, I think that's what he was going for. The book is about a bunch of grad students and their friends, and it's filled with all this existential angst. I like that, and I know his writing is good, but the things the characters were doing were almost incomprehensible to me. I mean, I didn't feel drawn into their heads. Because I couldn't relate. Still, I like the fact that he used unsympathetic characters and that he didn't shy away from their faults. But I just kept asking, why would you do that for the entire book? Hmm. I think the similar responses here is that it's frustration with characters that you can't relate with. Yes. It's not that they're bad people they're just making stupid decisions and that can be super frustrating especially from a a first person point of view i think too though part of it is that they're making that they come off as bad characters because you wouldn't do what they wouldn't do there's like this dissonance of you know i really would like you if you didn't do this yeah and yeah <laughs> that is Uber frustrating, especially when it's a protagonist like with Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind, um, because you're thinking, Scarlett, like, this is not the time, you know, like, put your stuff aside and let's let's get with the program, girl. And the thing is, too, Jacob, I, I don't know about Sarah's book, but with Gone with the Wind, it is long. Like, you are following Scarlett from beginning to end, hours and hours and days and months and years with this book, like years in the timeline of the book. And um, she doesn't really grow on you. <laughs> no way. No. It's funny because it seems like people enjoy that book despite uh, I know. this character being so frustrating. It, it's like watching your friends do Screw up royally 24-7. Yeah, yeah 24-7. You just want to take them by the shoulders and shake them. Right. You can't because they're not real people and they don't listen to you. <laughs> exactly. But also, like, they offer you so much. This world offers you so much. The frustration is part of that toxic attachment we have with the book. But now, there's also the perspective where you can learn from mistakes. And sometimes these books can be interpreted like, interpreted like don't do this. Don't act like this. Because it's uh... not a good way to live. It's not what you should be doing in life to be successful and happy. It's... It's um. What's the uh, what's the opposite of a role model? Anti role model. That <laughs> anti model. <laughs> All right. Okay. With that, I think <laughs> it's time to wrap there. the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Julie Martin is going to be joining us. She's an avid book reader. We're going to be learning about her reading preferences, and we're going to be putting her also through the rapid fire review. God, God, I love that segment. And Amr Khan comes on to uh, curate books for you listeners. 
Looking forward to that convo. Only a week away. Uh, also, we want your feedback and contributions, people. So reach out to us. We want to know how you're loving the show because obviously what's not to love about it. You can call toll-free 1-866-509-4545. You can also send us an email, feedback at ami.ca. And that's it. We got to go because we literally have no time anymore. We're going to get um, turned off regardless. So I'm Ramia Amadin, Jacob Shymansky, co-hosts of the show with technical producer Nisreen Abdelmajid. We'll see you next week. And until then, happy audio with listening. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.